0: So I just called the uh, the audio people. They said the microphones in this room or any audio doesn't work right now. So I'm going to try to yell to y'all this morning. And when I yell, it's in love. It's not because uh, I'm angry or I'm trying to be preachy or anything like that. So I'll be yelling just for the sake of, of clarity. Um, but nevertheless, all right, it's been a long time since we've started in Bible study class. Three months now, 100 days. I didn't even know that, Joey, wherever you are, that's kind of I feel like that's like spiritual or something. I don't know. That's right at 100 days. Um, But I know with the whole COVID situation, the whole whole question concerning the church has always been in that time, when are we opening up? When are we going to reopen our facilities? When is Bible study opening up again? When can we do this again? And and ultimately, I want to kind of critique that because in a sense, even though our facilities have been largely closed... We never were ultimately closed. If you know, or if you've been plugged in here, we've had new people getting plugged in. We've had new people coming, coming to small group. In fact, there's been people who have just gotten exposed to this church for the first time over the break. So raise your hand if this is your first time in a Bible study class like this one. Here, just raise your hand. All right, awesome, yeah. It's a handful of people, that's great. Um, So just to say that even though our facilities are closed, We're still open, we're a church, it's not a building, it's a movement of people and a community. We're the church and we can do that already. So we've already seen that, which is great. But, the lesson for today. So, after having been gone for three months, maybe you're wondering, okay, are we gonna kick off a brand new teaching series? Since we weren't able to meet the last three months, what does that look like? Great question, no, we're not starting off a new lesson, new teaching series, we're actually continuing with the same one that we had been doing, Uh, Since the beginning of the year, we did a year-long series called His Plan, Our Purpose, where we're going through the entire Bible all year long. In March 8th, the last time we were able to meet, we stopped at the end of Joshua. Today, we're going to be starting in Ecclesiastes. So we're not starting a new one. We're not skipping all the old content, too. In fact, during the COVID time, we had a pastor teach through the series, As If. COVID never happened. And today we're starting up with our series today as if COVID never happened again. It's just the same lesson on the same day that we had planned anyways. So we're just going to keep moving forward with that. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ecclesiastes chapter nine. Ecclesiastes chapter nine. Understand that Ecclesiastes is not a book of the Bible you would usually kind of gravitate towards anyways. Um, So if you need to look at your table of contents, no shame in that. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, If you open up your Bibles to the middle, You'll probably find Psalms or Proverbs. It's actually right after that. It goes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. If you're in Isaiah or in Jeremiah, you've gone too far, so start flipping backwards. But as we turn in there, let me give you a quick overview of Ecclesiastes uh, as, as we begin to drive into the particular passage we'll be looking at today. So Ecclesiastes is a very eclectic book of the Bible, and really for three main reasons if you want to take notes. One, Ecclesiastes just has some really weird statements in it. Um, if there was ever a time in your quiet time or Bible reading to not just put your finger on a verse and then make that your life verse of the day or whatever, now's the time to not do that. Ecclesiastes has some really weird ones. Let me give you some examples. So Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 2. The day you die is better than the day that you were born. It's better to go to a home where there is mourning than to one where there is a party because the living should always remind themselves that they're going to die. All right, sweet. Love that. Debbie Downer. Ecclesiastes 7.16, how about this one? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why wear yourself out? It's like, wait, that's in the Bible? I feel like we're, we're at church right now. It doesn't seem right. Ecclesiastes uh, 9.8, wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Some of the single girls in here are like, yes, men, you need to take that one to heart. Um, Ecclesiastes 10.19, this is an interesting one for us Baptists. Wine makes life happy and money is the answer to everything you're like, wow, that's, that doesn't sound like a Bible verse. It sounds like an edgy like fortune cookie or something like that. Um, or what about this one? This is not your most politically correct statement. Ecclesiastes 7.28. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Sorry, that's just, that's just the Bible. Ecclesiastes 11.3. This is another one that's interesting. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it lies. It's like Obviously, right? Like if there was ever a time to answer the age old question, if a tree falls and no one's there to hear it, doesn't it make a sound. You would think that that would be the time to hear it, but it just seems like a missed opportunity we didn't get, but still a mystery. So what are we supposed to do with all of those strange verses? Well, this can be cleared up namely in a second reason why Ecclesiastes is a little bit more eclectic. And that's that it's written differently than all different books of the Bible because of it's written by essentially two different people in a strange way. There's a teacher, of the book and there's an author of the book. So it's composed of the interplay of a teacher and an author together. So this is what it means essentially. The author introduces someone who is the teacher and then the teacher teaches throughout the whole book and then along the way the author critiques and affirms, kind of writes notes in the margin and then publishes everything that he says. So for example, the teacher is like a character in the book that the author writes about. So it's kind of like if, uh, if, if someone were to transcribe this message and then send it to Dr. Young, hopefully he would like it, but he would get it and then he would add his own notes. He would circle things, correct things, disagree with things, agree with things. Then he would like end it with his concluding remarks and then publish it. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, does that make sense? That's a little bit what's going on. Now, who's the author? Who's the teacher? We don't know who the author is. The teacher, we believe, the the popular opinion is that he's King Solomon. And we'll see that from the content. This is the third thing that makes Ecclesiastes a little bit eclectic, is that the content itself is just very different from the rest of things that you'll read in Scripture. Not just the confusing statements, but also you'll hear the teacher, this teacher that we believe is Solomon, write about how he has everything that the world has to offer. Literally everything. That's why we assume it's Solomon, because he really did have everything. And yet he's really, really disappointed and really just kind of confused in life. So Solomon had everything. He was the richest man to ever live. He was the wisest man to ever live. One thousand sexual options a night, wrote best-selling books. He wrote the the songs that like people sung throughout the day. I don't know if they had like a, a kind of their own kind of radio version. He wrote all of the ones that were popular. He was the most powerful individual in the known world. And we're still talking about him today. People would travel all over just to hear from him, but he just was largely disappointed and confused in life. He thought, I thought that life would make me happy if I did this and it, he did it and it didn't make him happy. Or I thought that if I made this wise decision, then it would lead to this conclusion. And I did make that decision, but, and it seemed like the right thing, but then the whole situation just blew up in my face. So how am I supposed to make sense of that? Maybe y'all can relate to this, just the the dissatisfaction of life. He's saying that we often have neat and tidy categories for the way that we think life ought to operate. And sometimes they do, but it's not a fail-safe way. It doesn't work that way all the time. Life is just more complex than that. And all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there's two phrases, and if you want to write this in the notes of your Bible or whatever, there's two phrases that reflect this reality of dissatisfaction and just meaningful, like meaninglessness in, in, in how to make sense of what life is. And this is the two words, you write these down, it's futility and under the sun. Futility and under the sun. So write those in the margin, you're gonna see this all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Futility is mentioned 38 times throughout the book, and under the sun is mentioned 29 different times. So futility, depending on whatever translation you have, you might see different words in there as well. You might see meaninglessness, or you might see vanity, uh, all conveying the same idea. The Hebrew word there is Hevel, H-E-V-E-L. Hevel, if you wanna write that down. Hevel in the Hebrew is a really hard word to translate into English because it doesn't really communicate on our English kind of like plane of, of thinking. It means two things at the same time. It means it's temporary and fleeting, and it also means it's enigmatic and paradoxical. Like it doesn't make sense. So you might sound like, well, that sounds unrelated, temporary, fleeting, enigmatic, paradoxical, I don't get it. All right, think about the nature of a vapor or a smoke. That's what that's what Hevel means, sorry. It means vapor or smoke, literally. Uh, think about the nature of a vapor or a smoke. It's, it's temporary and fleeting, right? But it also has this kind of enigmatic characteristic to it because it's the nature of smoke or vapor is to enshroud something, It enshrouds something. It's like smoke and mirrors. It's not what meets the eye. It's, it's fleeting and enigmatic. So like a vapor or cloud, Right? It gives the illusion that it has some kind of substance to it. But then as soon as you try it out, you lean against it. You try to grasp it. You just go right through it. You, don't, you lean against it. There's no substance. You're dissatisfied by what you discover. It doesn't make sense. That's, that's hevel. okay. And then the other phrase that kind of builds on this idea is under the sun. Under the sun. That's the second phrase that you see all throughout Ecclesiastes. And this essentially means a view of life under the sun. A view of life without God. Without eternity, as if God does not exist, as if eternity does not exist, think about the, the uh, Disney movie um, uh, little mermaid, little mermaid. you know you have the under the sea, right What does under the sea like represent just everything under the sea it doesn 't have anything to do with the sky it doesn 't have anything to do with the, the land in the same way Ecclesiastes is saying, under the sun is everything that 's just in this material world, as if god doesn 't exist, as if eternity doesn't exist. And then using those two words, Hevel, right? And then under the sun, he the author begins to critique what the teacher says about what's true, what's right, how we ought to think about certain things. And he shows that without God, there is no meaning. And with God, you actually begin to see meaning in a lot of things that otherwise might feel confusing and hard to kind of grasp at. And through this grid work, he, he addresses pretty much everything. Wealth, pleasure, prosperity, health and wellness, status, recognition, legacy, relationships, work and career. And today we're gonna look at specifically how this idea of Hevel and meaninglessness and under the sun relates to our work and our career. So as young adults, I feel like this is a pretty uh, relevant topic for us as we're kind of beginning to get into our career or switching jobs, getting into another job that we didn't like and learning what we do like and what we don't like. And we can just get frustrated with the hevel of it all, maybe. Maybe we're like feeling that right now in our own life. But I want, hopefully today, for you to see through Ecclesiastes how you can find freedom in that. It doesn't feel like you're slaving away at something that's, that's empty. You can actually find meaning in it all along. And so our verse today that we're going to be looking at, it's actually just one verse. It's Ecclesiastes 9.10. Ecclesiastes 9.10. We're going to see three main things. So if you're taking notes, just a quick little outline. It's the design of work, the dignity of work, and the delight of work. I went to seminary for that. So three D's right there. So here's our verse. I'll read it and then we'll kind of get into it. This is what it says. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Okay. We're going to kind of parse this verse out like step by step, phrase by phrase. So number one in your outline, the design of work, the design of work. How do you perceive work and career, or rather, how should you perceive work and career? So look at the first phrase in verse 10. You can kind of begin to see a blueprint for how you're supposed to approach this. Whatever your hand finds to do. What does that mean exactly? So two things we can glean from this. One, we're designed to work. Letter A, we're designed to work. When God created mankind, He did not make us like the stars or like the ocean or like the gravitational laws of physics or even like the animals for that matter. The Bible says that when God created mankind, he made us in his own image. That's Genesis 127. And since God is a creative being and he's an intelligent being and he has order and design, therefore being made in his image, we're also made to work and to have creative capacities as well. So we have the capacity for creativity in our mind. We have the agency to carry it out with our hands. We're made to work. It's simply a part of our DNA. We're made in the image of God. He works. And if we're made in his image, we work. It's just natural to us. And, and hear me out. This doesn't mean that we're designed to have a job, okay? I know that right now, especially with COVID, maybe there's a handful of y'all who have lost your jobs or are struggling with furlough or wondering what job stuff looks like for the future. I understand that. It's, it doesn't really get at job. It really gets at mission. It really gets at your purpose. What are you living for? What are you working for? Jobs come and go. We know that but we're made to live purposefully and on mission and work carries that out, okay? So underneath your job, if you will, there's a mission. That's what God's calling us to do. And when God created mankind, his very first command to Adam was one of mission. It was to work the creative order, to develop it and to have dominion over it. This is important. We need to to understand this because sometimes we look at work as, oh, this is plan B because of the fall. Oh, this is my work. It came here because of sin. The design for work and mission was actually established before man rejected God, before sin had entered into the world, which means that work and mission was not plan B, it's plan A, plan A before a fallen world. It's a gift. And then also, and this is going to get into kind of where we're at a little bit at young adults kind of our stage of singleness and everything, is that work and mission was also given to us by God before God made Eve. Before there was marriage, there was work. Before Eve came into the picture, before marriage and family was even a thing, man was living and working and was on mission. Adam was tilling the ground and tending the garden and naming the animals and creating systems of how to organize the garden and bringing the raw materials together in a meaningful way. He was living on mission. A couple of things here, just drive-by applications after all us young single adults we think about marriage a lot we think about romance dating a lot this means god's design for for relationships god's design for marriage fits inside of his design for mission and work fits inside god designed us such that mission would be bigger in our lives than marriage mission is bigger than marriage in our lives marriage doesn't give you mission it helps accomplish mission. That's the whole point of marriage. And so for some of us young single adults, it, maybe we feel so bored and so empty with where we're at in life because we've made marriage the mission. And if marriage is the mission, then of course you're gonna be bored and, and, and you know, feeling empty as a single person. But ultimately, if, we design, if we're living in light of our design to work and to live on mission, then even marriage, as big as that is, right? It'll fit in with that and it'll kind of enhance what you're already living for anyways, So, but there's another thing that we can kind of draw from this, whatever your hand finds to do. This is letter B. We're designed to work. Secondly, is that we naturally gravitate to a specific type of work. We naturally gravitate towards a specific type of work. So God not only only created us with the kind of ability to work in general, right, broadly. He also created us with the the certain capacity to do a particular type of work that we're just more gifted in. He's given us different skill sets, predispositions, personalities to kind of fit in a certain role. That best fits who we are, right? God did not make everyone to be a lawyer or a teacher or a social worker or an IT developer. He made us all differently so that we could have a expansive dominion over all the different areas of work that there is in the world. The word hand in that verse, whatever your hand finds to do, just shows us our design that we're meant to work. But finds to do is interesting here. It shows us that we're made to work specifically and how exactly. So look at that phrase, whatever your hand finds to do. Does your your hand like have a mind of its own? The answer here is yeah, kinda, actually yeah. When it says whatever your hand finds to do, it's it's referring to the idea that your hand, your ability to work is gonna gravitate towards something that it more naturally finds to do. What do you find that's just easy for you? It doesn't really feel like work, it just feels right. You know what I mean? There's a term for this, it's called flow, F-L-O actually. And it's, 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 it's to describe that idea that you're in the zone in your work. Now, for me, I've never been in the zone when I'm on Microsoft Excel. That just doesn't, it'll never happen because it doesn't fit my personality. But some of you, you like Microsoft Excel, Excel so much, and you, that spreadsheet is like a, a map of buried treasure to you. You just drool when you see it. That's not me. Or, or for some of you, maybe for, for working in the, in the courtroom, it's like a temple almost. You just feel like everything is right. You're bringing in God's justice, hopefully into a world of disorder and chaos. As a lawyer, your your heart kind of beats fast about that stuff. Same thing when it comes to technology or sales or medicine or or PR, you just kind of gravitate towards that because it's you, it's who you are. I know we've all kind of struggled with this question before, right? Like what is God's will for my life? What is my calling or career path? And how do you really figure that out? Well, this verse is helpful because it's calling us to not look up into the sky and see what god writes in the clouds with a blimp it's really saying look inside at what's embedded into your dna what does your hand find to do that it just loves to do that you enjoy doing don't look up and out look start to look in it's okay to look in for this thing at least now i've once heard it said that you can find your calling if you will at the intersection of three main things your abilities your affinities and the affirmations of other people, I'll say that again. You can find your calling at the intersection of three things, your abilities, your affinities, and your affirmations of other people. Your abilities just refer to your God-given strengths, skill sets, your affinities refer most nearly to what you really just enjoy doing. It brings you energy. And then the affirmation of other people, of course, is people saying, yeah, not only do you like that, you're actually good at it, and I benefit from that myself. I can see you doing that, I can see you being a doctor, I can see you being a teacher. And when you have all three of those things together, when they intersect, kind of think of a Venn diagram, you got a circle here, circle here, circle here, right where they intersect at the middle, that's kind of your sweet spot of what your calling might be. Whatever your hand finds to do should help us see that our calling, our mission, it's not really a job as much as it is just being faithful to who God's made us to be, who he's designed us to be after all. What's interesting, I think this is really fascinating, I didn't know this before I started studying uh, to teach. And it's that the word vocation in our culture today, vocation, we think about what job, how to make money, etc. like where we spend 40 hours a week. The original sense of that word does not communicate that. The, the English word vocation actually comes from the Latin word vocare. vocare. And vocare does not mean job, career, or work. It actually means the way that you serve other people. Vocare means the way that you serve other people. It concerns a mission or service beyond yourself. So the question for us young adults today is, all right, if that's all that's true, why do we pursue not what we're good at, but we pursue what makes the most money? Why do you work, not what actually you're passionate about, but just because that's what is expected of you to do? Because that's what your parents want you to do, or that's because like, society tells that you you should do. When I was in orientation in college, I remember asking people like, oh, what's your name? What's your major? You know, the small talk. And like 90% of people were like, oh, I'm pre-med. Oh, I'm pre-law. It's like, oh, my bad, obviously. (laughs) Why? Why is that the case? Because in our culture, those two jobs, you know, if you're a lawyer, great. If you're a doctor, great. You should do that. If that's how God designed you to do it. But if not, don't do it just because that's a position of status that you have to get in order to feel validated right? You're sacrificing who God's made you to be. This is where Hevel comes in. Remember Hevel, vapor, smoke, meaninglessness, vanity, that kind of thing. If life is just under the sun, there is no God. There is no eternity. Then why have a mission in your life? Why have a mission to help other people? If I got 80 years, I'm looking out for me. I'm looking out for number one. Why care about things like injustice, inequality, oppression? Why care about that? If God doesn't exist, if eternity doesn't exist, if it doesn't benefit you, why, why care? If you'll feel less human, though, because it goes against your design, but if, if life is just under the sun, you're just going to maximize your own happiness. I'm just going to think about my own pleasure, my own safety, my own security. And in America, we find more happiness not in what we do, but in what we possess. We love materialism, we love kind of being comfortable. So I'm going to take that job because of the money, because that's priority for me over my happiness, and we'll sacrifice our passions and, and our abilities as a result. But Here's where it kind of flips. If God does exist, if eternity is real, and if he's designed you for a purpose, then you have a mission. Then you, then you have, you're not just living for yourself anymore, you're living for other people, and that will begin to humanize you. You begin to feel life. You'll take a job that's not just about the money, but about what actually makes you fulfilled and happy and because you're serving other people. And it'll go in line with, with your passions. It won't go against the grain of your passions. You'll find more satisfaction in your work that money just can't buy you anyways. See, if God doesn't exist, natural selection is all there is, and that is the design for your work. Work is just a part of that. It's just, work is just another cog in the wheel of a cold, cruel universe. All right, going back to that first verse we said in Ecclesiastes, but if God does exist, there is design, there is meaning. Your work is not just a cog in the wheel of a cold, cruel universe. Your work is actually partnership with God that's, that's, it's meaningful. It's valuable in and of itself. This leads to the second point. I'll kind of move through this a little bit quicker. The dignity of work. That was number one, the design of work, the dignity of work. We find the dignity of work in the next phrase. So keep going. Says, uh, whatever your hand finds to do, the next phrase is do it with your might, do it with your might. In other words, the question is not whether I'm channeling my energies for work. The question is how am I channeling my energies for work? Why am I living? So I want to kind of scan this phrase like an x-ray, you know, x-ray kind of positively shows you what's there negatively shows you what's not there kind of do the same thing with this verse as well show you what this verse does mean and then also what it doesn't mean and why we should apply that first working with our might what does that actually mean obviously working with well it means i should work hard okay it's a command it's an exhortation right but note here it's not saying work with your might because that's what good christians ought to do put a smile on your face laziness is of the devil like idle hands make for a devil's workshop you'll ever heard that my grandma would tell me that i don't know what that means for me but Um, Work at it with your might is an exhortation to us. But in light of the first verse, in light of the fact that work is good, in light of the first, the idea that God's given us abilities that are good and that mission is good, the exhortation is not just an arbitrary command as if you're trying to prove yourself to God. It's saying this is the only right response for you in light of what work is, in light of who God is. It's the only right response. It's more about faithfulness and gratefulness than anything else. Therefore, the solution here, okay, we all need to kind of take this to heart, myself included, is that the solution to laziness, right, or a bad attitude when it comes to work, is not to beat yourself down and say, work harder, work harder, put a smile on your face. The solution to laziness is you need to see more clearly. You need to see more clearly the dignity of work. Most of the time, boredom or laziness is is not because, well, that's just my personality or, well, I don't really like my job or I don't really care for this industry that much and I'm gonna switch jobs anyways. That might be 100% true. I've been there myself. But the root issue here is failing to see God's design for work and neglecting to really enjoy the dignity of work. Work is dignifying on its own accord. Let's make this practical, okay? This might uh, resonate with many of us here right now. Some of you are in a job you might not like and that's okay, because that's probably been 95% of us. I've been there too. I love my job here, by the way. It's not one of them. I love my job here. The jobs before this uh, were, were just not totally me, and that's okay. But here's where the Bible speaks to us specifically. Even if you don't like your job, even if you can't stand your boss, he or she annoys you or exploits you or whatever, do it with your might. Do it with your might. Why? Why? Even though you don't like your job and you're tired and exhausted, work itself is still a gift from God, so do it with your might. And even if you don't like your boss and that person annoys you, your main boss is God, so do it with your might. Not because your boss deserves it, but because God does. Our role here is stewardship and obedience. Whatever you're doing, what this Colossians 3.23 says, if you grew up in the church, you know this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men because you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Working for the Lord and not for men is a reward unto itself. The work work is dignifying in and of itself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Strength, yeah. Might, that's how how we should be working. It's a response. But negatively, what does it not mean to do it with your might? Not mean. So it means I just don't do it at all, kind of, but different. Let's think more critically about this. If the right way is to honor the dignity of work in your energies, the wrong way is to dishonor the dignity of work with our energies, all right? How do we dishonor the dignity of work? How do you do that? If, we, if work is an intrinsically beautiful thing on its own accord, how do you dishonor it? Well, one way to dishonor it is by using work to serve a different purpose than it actually is on its own accord. For example, like, let, let's ask it this way, am I, treating my work as a means to an end, or is it an end to itself? Let me say that again. Am I treating my work as a means to an end, or as an end unto itself? Am I treating my work primarily as useful because of what it gives me in return? Or do I see my work, do I treat my work as something beautiful and dignifying on its own accord for what it actually is? For example, you know, we, we can use our work as a way of establishing our own significance. I need to feel validated, therefore I'm gonna take this job. Or we reduce our work to only being rungs of the ladder that I gotta climb in order to get a promotion because the promotion means I'm validated, or I'm significant, or I get, that more, I get the raise. Or we flatten our work into a platform so that we can receive the recognition of other people. Or we diminish it to only being about money after all. See, now there's nothing wrong, okay, hear me out with being you know promoted or, or making a lot of money with your job, or there's nothing wrong with, with being recognized or, or gaining status where you're at. But as soon as you make work, a means for these things, you not only dishonor your work, you ruin it. You ruin your work. How? Because your concern will only be about using that work to get what you get out of it. You're not really caring about it. Concerned about it. You're just concerned about what it gives you. All right. You know it's scary. Let's make this again practical. When a doctor becomes a doctor, not because he has God given abilities or skills, but just because he's going to make a lot of money. Do you want that person working on your heart? No. I mean, I hope they do a good job, but they don't really care about you or the work, they just want the money. Or how about this, what if a person becomes a CEO, not because they have abilities or the passion to do it, but because they just want that position of power and status in the company? Is that someone that you want in charge of the company that you work for? Of course not, and you kinda know when that happens, right? Not to judge, but you can kinda sense that they're just kinda checked out, but they're there. When work becomes a means to an end, we usually find ourselves bowing down at the feet of an idol that we're looking to, to give us something that only God can give us to begin with. We're looking to our work to give us significance or security or satisfaction, a thing that only God can really give us. And in doing so, we put a God-like pressure on our work and our work just crumbles as a result. And this is where Hevel comes in once again. Remember Hevel? Vapor, smoke, meaninglessness, vanity. If life is just under the sun, that's all that exists. And God doesn't exist at all, eternity doesn't exist then why care about the dignity of your work? Why care about that? If you go to kind of like the Middle East, their view is that the world is just temporary, but eternity is forever. So why really care about the quality of our work? Why really care about the quality of our city infrastructure? I mean, it's all going to go, you know, it's all going to get burned up with fire anyways, so why really care about it? That's kind of how they think. The quality of your work is going to go down. If, If we subvert our work to be just about our own significance, then the pressure on our work, to try to find ourselves in it, is so heavy, the enjoyment is going to go down. If life is only under the sun and your identity is always hanging in the balance of your work, you're never going to be able to sleep. There's always something to do. Your identity is at stake. You're, you have to keep going. You can never unplug. You can never take a vacation. You can't sleep. You got to keep working, working, working because your identity is built on it. And then your quality of your work suffers and you suffer and it, just, it doesn't work. Tim Keller says this, When you treat work this way, you're going to go through life doubly tired, doubly tired. What does that mean? what he says, he says, even underneath their work, there is a greater work taking place, a spiritual work underneath their work. So they are doubly tired. They're not only tired from their vocational work, eight to five, because we get exhausted from that, but they're tired from the fact that in their vocational work, they're trying to fulfill the work of their spiritual state to find significance and validation, which you're never going to find. Therefore, you're always going to go through life doubly tired, spiritually tired, vocationally tired, which doesn't work. But if God does exist, if eternity does exist, if the gospel is true, then you've been given worth. You've been given significance. You've been given security, the deepest things you long for in life, not from what you do or don't do or the accomplishments that you have, but because the blood of Jesus was shed for you to show you how much you mean to him. And if if you mean that much to him, it doesn't matter what your work says about you. And it means the pressure is now finally off. You don't have to stop working for yourself. Now you can just enjoy your work. Now you can just see your work as your work. You're not going to be doubly tired anymore. You're just going to be like singularly tired, just tired. Because you're just vocationally tired, but my work is not accomplishing something that only God can accomplish for me. Maybe you're like, Austin, you seem very familiar with this subject. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've wrestled with this my whole life. I'm a, I'm a three Enneagram. Any other threes in here? That one person. Let's go. Yes. But when God's love for us in Christ becomes our identity, it redeems your work to just be your work. It's just your work. It's no longer your identity. It's no longer your security. It gives you relief. And that actually breathes quality into your work. It breathes for you to be able to rest and like unplug finally. And you become probably a more enjoyable person to be around anyways. So as a Christian, we work hard in our jobs, not because we're going to get something out of it because it's just a right response in light of who god is we don't work for that significance in a way we work from being significant we work from being secure and it's not the other way around our work resumes an idea of dignity on its own accord and this leads to the last point number three here in your notes the delight of work so design of work dignity of work now it's up to us how do we like find actual delight in our work this is what the verse is saying here read the last phrase go back to your scripture For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. All right. What is Sheol? Never heard of that. Ultimately, it's a Hebrew kind of motif for the realm of the dead. Just means dead. Doesn't mean heaven. Hell just means dead. All right. Just Sheol dead. Now, what does this mean exactly? To which you are going. Sheol to which you're going. There's no more wisdom, no more knowledge. What it's saying is that the author here is providing for us a framework around our work. That framework, which is time. We're all gonna die. Time is a limited resource. And usually the more that we want of it, we can't get enough of it when it comes to our work. We want time to finish that project. We gotta do this. There's, I wish there were more hours in a day for me to accomplish this and to get ahead. And so time limits us, our accomplishments, our goals, it humbles us, it sobers us up, makes us realize we might not ever finish it, that I'm not God after all. I need to sleep, I need to rest. And this is what's so ironic, our limited time has everything to do with our delight in our work our limit of time has everything to do with our delight in our work we think it's the opposite we think that if we have unlimited time then we'd have lots of delight because we can get everything done but it's actually the reverse here let me let me kind of pull on uh, author J.R.R. tolkien y'all have heard of him he wrote the lord of the rings he wrote the lord of the rings and in the middle of him writing this this series the lord of the rings book um he hit a wall in his writing he like could not get any further he was like oh, this is my life's work, I'm never gonna finish this, this is just, this is horrible, I've spent so many hours, so much time, and this just might all be for naught. And so in this hiatus, if you will, of him feeling so frustrated in his work, he actually kind of like spontaneously writes a quick short essay called Leaf by Niguel, where he tells a fictional story, kind of talking about himself actually, and about our own kind of experience of work, about the limitations and frustrations that we find in work. And in his short story, this man named uh, Niguel is an artist, and his lifelong aspiration is to paint this beautiful mural of a tree on the side of this church building. A beautiful mural of a tree. And there's two problems here about Niguel. One, he's an extreme perfectionist. Like everything has to be picture perfect, everything has to be absolutely perfect before he can move on to anything else. And the second thing, this doesn't go well with him is that he is such a servant-hearted person. He is so kind, he thinks of others so much that he will drop the paintbrush whenever there's a need and he'll go and serve as much as much as possible. I felt like that was his duty. So obviously, if you put the fact that he's a perfectionist and that he's a servant-hearted person side by side, you're probably not gonna get a whole lot accomplished, right? And those two tensions did not allow him to do what he wanted to do, which was finish the tree that he wanted to paint. In fact, he only painted one leaf, just one leaf. And he was... On his his deathbed, he was sad. And he was like, God, I put you first. I tried serving your people. I I sacrificed my life's work for your calling. I did my best. I just didn't complete it. And I I got one leaf done. And what happens next is really interesting in the short story. What happens is that this communicates Tolkien's main idea here about work and eternity. Miguel is carried off to heaven. And he sees something fascinating as he's carried off to heaven. He sees the project of his tree mural completed fully fully completed and he's finally able to enjoy it in its fullest sense and so tolkien's message here is that we live in a world plagued by sin and frustrations um into the completions of our goals and aspirations but in god's economy this is what tolkien's saying in god's economy when our work is done with hearts and hands that are bent on serving the kingdom and living on mission our work means something. And even if it's not fulfilled here, it's carried over into eternity, whether it was completed here or not, and where we can find the ultimate enjoyment of it all along. See, without God in eternity, our work on earth does not mean anything. It's all Hevel. It's just meaninglessness. It's vapor, it's smoke. But with God in eternity, even our smallest efforts, even the ones that are left unfinished or frustrated by outside forces, those matter still, and they carry over into eternity in a meaningful way. And when we take that truth to heart in our work, that should inspire us to a sense of delight and a sense of peace in our work that, hey, all right, I didn't finish. That's okay. What matters is it'll carry over into eternity. This is an investment. My work, my time, it's an investment that'll carry over into eternity. Tim Keller, again, I quoted him earlier. Uh, he has a book I'm kind of pulling on here called Every Good Endeavor. It's a really good book. If you're looking on a book on career and work, Every Good Endeavor, highly recommend it. But this is what he says in, in writing about this. He says, if, if this life is all that there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun and no one will even be around to remember anything that has ever happened. <laughs> it's true. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing, will be, nothing we do will make any difference and all the good endeavors, even the best, will come to nothing unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there really is a true reality underneath and behind this one, and this life is not just this life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, and even the ones not even completed, pursued in response to God's calling, they matter forever. That is the Christian, that is what the Christian faith promises. And 1 Corinthians 15, says, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So how can we truly take delight in our work? Does delight happen only once you've finished or if you've finished? If it's found in if you've finished, then you'll never be able to enjoy the process. If the delight is only found in until you've finished, then once you do, then if it's just on this side of heaven, then it's just on to the next project. It'll be heavily, It'll be fleeting. Your satisfaction, your delight, will just be gone like, a, like the wind. You can find your delight in your work because God did not create this universe and then just leave it to meaninglessness. He created it such that it would matter and carry over into eternity. Even what you do now, even if it's not quote unquote spiritual, your work matters because this world is not something that we're going to leave. It's something that heaven's going to come down to and redeem one day. Everything matters that we do. And Jesus loved this world so much that he came down and, and died for us so that we could be redeemed and that our work could be redeemed as well. It's not just Christianity and your work. Your work is a function of your faith. It all goes in the same. And the gospel gives us that substance, right? That Hevel in life just doesn't give you. Hevel is fleeting and unsubstantial and empty and meaninglessness. The gospel message finally gives you that rock to stand on as you work. So to land this plane, question for all of us is this, who am I living for? What am I really living for here? What are my gifts and passions? How can I respond and give God my best and wherever I am in life? If you can boil down the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, go there, my disciples, and make or go therefore and make disciples of many nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded to you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. How do you take that framework and impose it onto your work? I've heard it said this way, and this has kind of guided me as I think about work. And it's this phrase. If you want to write this down, or you want to tweet it. This is very, very good. I've tried to live by this. I heard it at a college work conference when I I was back in college. And it says this, do what you do best for the glory of God and do it in a place that is most strategic for the mission of God. Do what you do best for the glory of God and do it in a place that is most strategic for the mission of God. See, when we look deeply at how God has specifically designed us, right, our abilities, our affinities, our affirmations, we can begin to strategically position ourselves in ways that we can say, God, I agree with you. I'm partnering with you on your mission and whatever work you have for me, I'll do that as a response of faithfulness. And when you follow that design, your work becomes more personally enriching, fulfilling, and we're, able, we're enabled to show the world what the gospel message really means, even in the quality of our work. So that's what we got today in Ecclesiastes 9. I'm going to go ahead and pray and then Joey will close us out with some last announcements. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Ecclesiastes, uh, a book that's a little bit strange and eclectic, but I thank you for the promise that in you there is hope, in you there is substance in a world that's otherwise hevel and meaninglessness uh, and vanity. And so I pray that as we go about our weeks, um, the world around us, our coworkers, our family, our friends, they'd be able to see the substance of the hope that we have, the gospel, uh, in a world that is so fleeting and vain. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.